Well, welcome back to Thinking About It, and I'm here with uh, my good friend, Ryan Kreitzer, uh, who uh, coordinates learning in our church. Our learning center also has a very dynamic, active ministry with Power to Change. And uh, Ryan is teaching, uh, well, you're teaching a course here at Grandview right now. What is that course, Ryan? It's the second uh, Grace and Truth 2.0. Yeah, that is uh, from the series that Preston Sprinkle puts out. Uh, that doesn't say anything. Well, yeah, I can t- explain a lot more. Well, it tries to bring out the ideas of when we are engaging with those from the LGBTQ plus community, do we, how do we think about it? I mean, there's a lot of questions that probably are naturally come to mind uh, when we hold a traditional view of marriage, uh, that the historic Christian ethic towards sexuality. How, what does that look like? Okay, and we're going to talk about that today because I know you're immersed in this, and so I thought it'd be great to have you on board. Maybe do a couple of uh, podcasts because at Grandview, uh, the next Sunday after this podcast is recorded, we're beginning a series in Romans that deals with sexuality, particularly the wrath of God. Uh, there's this um, very clear passage that speaks to. Um, homosexuality and how the church should think about that, and the church is thinking about it, sometimes um, in a way that's unbiblical. Hopefully, uh, we will think biblically about this passage. But uh, So let's start there, Ryan. I just want to just read the passage for us. We'll talk a little bit about that, and then we will speak more pastorally about how to see people who are on board with what the scripture says, they're trying to live with that reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual immor- impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received for themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so Paul in Romans is building a case for the need of the gospel. He's got that wonderful nugget of truth that the just shall live by faith. The gospel is the salvation of God, is the power of God. And for those in his audience who might think, well, how desperate is it? How bad is it? Do we really need this salvation? Does God really need to go through all of that to save us? And so he is building a case for the sinfulness of all men religious and irreligious, so that they are without excuse. So he really lays into this. And if people feel like they're on a guilt trip, that's kind of what Paul's trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, to create that righteous guilt so that the gospel will shine as brightly as what he wants it to do. So, um, so up front, can we agree that um, homosexuality, the acts of homosexuality, behavior, is sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's clearly laid out that it's a, it's a part from the way the nature God intended. And so there is a sense in which um, 
there's a, there may be lots of questions about that, but that still is very clearly laid out here. Right. Some people would say that Paul is talking about a particular kind of homosexuality mm-hmm. where there is a, a power structure going on or men with boys, that kind of thing. But the idea of two men living consensually, lovingly, uh, Paul be all for that. Right, yeah, that argument is uh, going around a lot <laughs> in recent books that I've even read. And yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing in the text that limits it. There's nothing that shows uh, he's talking about that or even... Uh, it's just bringing in a uh, historical argument. Uh, I mean, sure, there, uh, that might have been the case at that time among Greek people, but he's not limiting to that uh, at all. Uh, he, uh, sexual immorality in general is condemned in this passage, and therefore uh, this is just one of the examples, but it's still all sexual immorality, that anything that's out of... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that he's talking about here. And then he makes a bit of a, a case for the unnaturalness of this uh, particular sin. And there are some who would say, well, it's not unnatural to me. Mm-hmm. This is my nature. And, yeah. of course, we would, I would push back on that and say it might be a preference to you. It might be uh, a same-sex attraction, might be an issue with you. But uh, to say that this is natural, according to the God who created you, uh, that's not even what the, what the Greek word phusia means. Mm-hmm. It's, it refers to something that is just contrary to creation. Yes. Now, yeah, we're not, we're not going to get into that right now, but I do want to spend some time assuming that most of our hearers uh, believe as we do that the Scripture condemns homosexual activity, and there are people in our churches who believe that, they're orthodox and traditional, Mm -hmm. but they deal with same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. And are they then homosexual, or are they gay? How do they Mm self-identify, and how do they fit into a church? Because sometimes churches isolate that particular sin Mm -hmm. and just kind of give a vibe of um, the unwelcome to people who deal with that. And so let's talk mm-hmm. for the next few minutes uh, about how the church can um, orient itself to be welcoming and, and loving and gracious to all people, regardless of their mess or their sin, because we're all dealing with some aspect yeah. of fallenness. Yeah, well, I think on one level, the one helpful thought around this has, for my uh, discussion, has been around the idea of singleness. Uh, At times, I think the church has, uh, well, I mean, there's a there is value to marriage, uh, and we we do want to celebrate marriage uh, as God created it. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the church is a family of families. And so, and a family of brothers and sisters who are all part uh, together of the church. And so, People can live, I mean, we never want to say that you're incomplete without a spouse. We never want to say that, uh, like, and sometimes, unfortunately, I would say that kind of language comes in. It's like, oh, you're 30 and you're not married. uh, Like, what's what's going on? Like, and there there can be a Mm -hmm. sense in which that is almost shamed in uh, Christian culture at times. And so we want to make sure that we don't... uh, contrary to scripture because there clearly is Jesus lived to be a f- I mean a fully 
uh, beautifully fulfilled life <laughs> as a human. Uh, we don't know exactly about Paul, but it looked like he was single too. And so there's a sense in which when we talk about uh, marriage, it may exclude someone who, I guess what the, the option, if, if someone was same-sex attracted, there's many ways that people have thought about that. At times, they may choose still to get married to someone of the opposite sex, um, and that's a possibility. But for some, that just doesn't seem what's the best thing for them. At, and so if they're choosing to remain single, glorifying God by that, um, mm-hmm. then I think we really need to create space for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so how do we do that? Um, because we've kind of tinkered with different structures, a singles mm-hmm. group, which a lot of people say, I don't want to be in on that. It's, it's a, there's a stigma just being in that group. True, yeah. Um, or do we just integrate them into um, small groups or whatever it is where there are married people or people are there irrespective of their marital status and they just kind of show up and they are who they are. They're that uncle or they're that aunt mm-hmm. in the family. Maybe not a, a weird uncle, but a beloved <laughs> uncle. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, certainly. I think there's a number of ways it can happen. I mean, when you think about a family structure, um, it doesn't often mean two just uh, like one-off things. There's going to be more of an inclusion on a regular basis. So, I mean, I think that it can I think intergenerational groups do help with that. Uh, probably that's probably one of the easiest way. That's not to say that sometimes having singles groups may be helpful, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I acknowledge some of the the challenges that I've seen in that way. Yeah. You know, sometimes we ask, well, why aren't you married, right? Yeah. And we shouldn't ask that. We shouldn't ask, why don't you have children? Those are questions mm. that none of our business. But if someone does feel called to singleness, due in part to their same-sex attraction. Um, is that a like a status that someone can embrace and the church can acknowledge that, that this person is like a eunuch or he's set apart or there's a special giftedness that he has that the church recognizes and um, he's honored for that? Have you yeah. heard of that happening? Or Well, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I have heard of people who uh, have remained single and just talk about what a gift it has been to enable them to do certain things. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's I've heard a lot of it, but I, in some ways what I would say even about like a gift, I think it's a gift to the church to be single and it's a gift to the church to be married. They're both just different gifts. Like I don't think anyone has a special ability to be single. We're called to be faithful to God no matter what. And so there's a sense in which that, even that term giftedness gets confused uh, at times and people think I, I don't have that gift and therefore I can't be single. Uh, but you, you do realize, yeah, there are, Paul encouraged, he wished, it's not a command, <laughs> but that everyone would remain single. And so there's a sense in mm-hmm. which it, it, it does open up more doors. There's less um, that, uh, I mean, yeah, Jesus was single, I think, is a very easy way to think about it. He was able to do lots of things <laughs> that he didn't have to do. Okay, and how did he How did he manage, right? Yeah. What, what are some... Exactly, uh, yeah. So he, he had people in his life, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it, it doesn't mean you don't have brothers and sisters in your life. Like, there's a sense... Jesus had so many people mm-hmm. around him 
Uh, he did have his disciples. He lived in community in a very real way. Uh, and yeah, we need to see that we can, yeah, a person can live without sex and marriage. You're not unfulfilled without sex and marriage, but you are unfulfilled without love and connection. And we want to give that to all people. Everyone who's human needs that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Jesus needed it too. Yeah. Many times uh, he expressed loneliness mm-hmm. and Dis- disappointment in his own friends for not being there when he needed them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so um, Jesus modeled what it's like to be on mission, mm-hmm. serving his Father, and uh, the support that he got, the prayer support that he got. And so he's a good example for people who are called, if you will, mm-hmm. to singleness or who, for whatever reason, are late in getting married. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a number of different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I do know people who want to get married, <laughs> but it hasn't worked at this time. With uh, And God, uh, I don't think, is late <laughs> in ever. We have to consider that uh, the gospel certainly doesn't promise us a spouse. It, it is something that we're promised um, a fulfilling life in Christ. So in your research mm-hmm. for the course that you're teaching, um, what have you come across uh, the counsel to give to someone who feels guilty about his same-sex or her same-sex attraction, like, what's wrong with me? Oh, okay, Those yeah. kind of thoughts. Um, are th- and how different are they from any thoughts, temptations to um, sinful sex? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, I always think about is conviction from, like, Romans 8. Uh, like that sort of thing draws us to God. Uh, condemnation would draw us away from God. Uh, so if, if what we feel is, co- is leading us to be away from God, that's not from God. God both acknowledges what, that which is broken and challenging for us, but he also embraces us and seeks to work with us, just like a prodigal son kind of story. Whereas, yeah, Satan would be a deceiver and seek to uh, say, did God really say that? And, and, and try to create him as this sort of monster that we have to run away from. And I think that's a good starting framework for understanding how we re- deal with even internal battles that we have. Uh, but on another, there's so many ways that that question could be answered. I'm, if there's a way that you'd be interested in going down a... Well, I do think it's it's important that people for people to know that um, sin is sin, yes, and we all deal with it. And mm. uh, the fact that one particular temptation might, in some regard, be unnatural doesn't make it a non-sin or a different uh, category of sin that yeah. is, is more repulsive. I think um, God is a God of grace, mm-hmm. and He um, walks with us in the valley of temptation. There is a way out of that, and you're not alone mm-hmm. in those feelings. And the, I just think it's important for um, us as a church to communicate grace mm-hmm. to all who struggle with sin and not to set apart someone as being uh, particularly needy for that. We all are. Yeah. 
Well, we and we are out of time, Ryan. Time has gone by really quickly, but I'd like to uh, revisit this subject, and uh, maybe we'll get you back on air to speak about some uh, pastoral strategies in dealing with people who really struggle with that. But until next time, thanks for listening to us on Thinking About It. I'm Bob McGregor here with... Ryan Kreitzer. And we'll see you next time. 